Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've ever been to the UK in the Christmas period, you'll know that you can't go far without seeing an advert for a pantomime, a form of theatre that only happens in the festive season. Typically, pantomimes are based on well-known children's fairy tales or nursery stories like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. They involve music, topical jokes and slapstick comedy. There's usually a villain, a dame, always played by a man, a lot of laughs and plenty of audience participation think, it's behind you! Oh no, it's not! And that sort of thing, and you get the right idea. The word pantomime actually comes from ancient Greek via Latin and means all kind of mime, owing to the fact that in its Roman origins, one male actor took to the stage acting and dancing all the roles in the story. The Roman form of pantomime is thought to have been built on Greek tragedies. So why am I giving you a crash course on panto on not just the Tudors? The answer is that the origins of modern pantomime can be traced back to the early modern period, to Italy. At this time, groups of actors gave performances known as Commedia dell'arte, or Comedy of the Profession. And as these troops travelled, so did their ideas, leading to other groups of actors adapting the performances for their own cultures and sense of humour. The OED dates the earliest use of the word pantomime in English to 1606. So let's talk about when this form arrived in Britain. How did playwrights and audiences take to pantomime and how did it evolve over time to be the spectacle we see on stages across Britain today? Joining me to take us on this journey is Dr Ollie Crick, teacher and writer in the field of Commedia dell'arte. Dr Crick has written prolifically on this topic, including Commedia dell'arte Scenarios, which was published by Routledge in 2022, and Commedia dell'arte for the 21st Century, Practice and Performance in the Asia-Pacific. So welcome, Dr Crick. Thank you very much. I'm very honoured to be allowed to talk about my specialist subject for a long period of time. Thank you for getting what Commedia dell'arte is right. It is a skilled profession. It was originally called that to distinguish itself from amateurs. So it's almost like saying we are Commedia dell'arte, we are professional performers. Where did it start? I'm going to talk about its origins because its whole story, starting in northern Italy right up to the Hippodrome Bristol now, is one of a constant evolution with a few constants. So it's the story of a style of professional theatre that really was no-holds-barred entertainment, but there are some very specific cultural areas of interest. So can I ask you then, what's the earliest trace of Commedia dell'arte that historians have been able to find in the archives, in early modern Europe? Right. There were two particular... One was a Padawan called Il Rosante, which means the peasant. He was a part-time performer and part-time playwright and had a sponsor whom he also managed his farm for. He wrote some plays which performed at Venice Carnival and locally, which had a lot of the characteristics, which I will explain in a moment. There was also a guy called Calmo, Andres Calmo, who was doing pretty much the same, but in Venice. They roughly coincide. 
what was specific about them is instead of taking old Greek and Roman characters and performing them, they were adapting the forms of old Greek and Roman comedy and performing them for the present, and the present being like, you know, 1540 or kind of earlier. Now, this is all called neoclassical drama, and basically neoclassical means we are trying to copy the classics, because one of my theories, and you can argue with this, is that part of the neoclassical movement during the Renaissance was one of great cultural inferiority, as in we've just come out of a period of barbarism, and we're going, look, in the monasteries, we found all this amazing artistic, sophisticated stuff of which we know not. So let's copy it, guys. And so we had characters like Orizante and Andres Calmo were creating local comedies, very sophisticated, based on models, but they were using traditional local characters. Roman comedy, especially later comedy, had very stock characters. The old man, the fool, Maccus, the clown, Pappus, the hunchback, and a Senex, an old man. These were stock characters. But there were two strands to this development, one of which was these learned academies, which one of the most famous is the Intronati of Siena, who were really where the word Renaissance man came through. There's a guy called Piccolomini who was a playwright and he was an astronomer and he was a lawyer. And all these people got together and it was like, and the Duke would say, hey, it's carnival time, guys. I want a comedy. And then go back to their learning because they could read Latin and they would literally do a reconstruction of a Roman comedy in Italian. And then they would update it to include a few local references. Now, this was very much academic, so they'd stick to Aristotelian unities. They would have the right pattern of entrances and exits. They would have academic arguments in print and lose friends over, is it five acts or is it three acts? Mix up a comedy, you know, whatever. And this was strictly amateur. But on the other side, there were these people who were seeing what was going on by being on the fringe of the courts and taking what was best out of things like dramatic structure and putting their own local jokes on it. Now, Rosanti was very significant because all the characters in Commedia, and one of its main features was stock characters, all came from different regions of northern Italy, which meant that they spoke the dialect or a performative dialect of northern Italy, and they all came within a specific area. So it's like if I come from you know Gloucestershire, we have beef with the Welsh, okay? It doesn't mean I have Welsh people, but we know Welsh people are like that, and they know everyone in English is like that. So when you have a range of characters that come from that, the implied way of saying you're digging into people's personal prejudices and stuff like that in order to make your comedy. So you have characters who are based on very much a worm's eye view of what a neighbour thinks of another. So... What Rosanti did is his character, Il Rosante, which just means the peasant, spoke a really rough Padawan dialect. And there's academic papers called The Problems of Translating Rosanti's Obscenities. And Ronnie Ferguson up in St. Andrews University has spent a long time compiling a massive North Italian Renaissance dialect book just so that people can understand precisely what filth these people were coming out with on stage. 
So for someone watching a modern British pantomime, when you were first talking about discussions over five acts and three acts, I was thinking it really doesn't have much in common with a modern pantomime. But now we're into the obscenity territory. This does feel a little bit more, there's a parallel there. Is that fair enough? The thing about comedy is that the thing that holds it all together is the story arc, which you don't often remember. Aladdin has to meet the princess of China, you know, the emperor's daughter, whatever they're going to call her has to do something particular and fight off Abenazar and get the lamp. So there's a story arc and eventually they get married and it's happy and Widow Twanky is all very happy. So there's a story arc which all the lunacy, the obscenity gets hung upon. Now, it's a totally legitimate idea to think that the performers, by performing rudely, not necessarily obscenity-wise, you know, that was their main avenue of entertainment. But the thing about Rosanti in his first play, but it also happens in Bilora and Rosanti Returns from the Wars, not only do the characters speak in different dialects, but they speak in different poetic forms. So suddenly there's one character has got all the dirty jokes, but the character from Tuscany is speaking in pure Petrarchian sonnets. And he has a girlfriend who leaves him. He dies of love on stage, or rather pretends to. And Rosanti comes along hunting and goes, die for love? He's an idiot. So you suddenly begin to get a class interaction as well. So, you know, the Marxist in me is kind of going, well, there's a class interaction to it. So, And basically Venice existed on a swamp. So the only thing that made it work was trade. And the old man in Commedia is Pantaloni the Bisognose, which means Pantaloni the Needy, is a merchant. He's an old man. So everybody knows that everyone from Venice is a merchant and tight as anything. So you suddenly get that becomes apparent from hell. From the peasant lands around or from the agricultural lands around, you get the peasants who are known as the Zanis or the Zanis, which is just short for Giovanni. It just means it's John. So you get the boss and John. So everybody in the audience knows there are these rich people in Venice and the people who do all the work are all the people from the outside surrounding in field. So Rosanti comes along, Calmo comes along, and pretty much about 10 years after they appear, the original stock characters of Commedia appear. Now, these survive up until the time of the French Revolution. So the original characters and their original zones was the lovers, the Inamorata and the Inamorati. They came from Tuscany, which is posh. It is where perfect Italian is spoken. So you have a pair of aristocratic characters who speak perfect Italian. Then you have Pantaloni, who is a parent. We've got to have a dad who says, no, you can't marry them. He comes from Venice. And my first shock when I came to Venice was to find that Venetian is like the Italian equivalent of Glaswegian. So going, eh, cosa facciamo, English? You know, it's really, ooh, nasty. So there's an oral sound to it. The servants... Alakino and Brigella, or first and second Zani, they come from Bergamo, which is the mountains there. So they got a different accent. The pedant, who is uh, almost a direct descendant from Roman comedy, he comes from Bologna, which is where the first universities in Italy were from. And all these are within 100 miles of each other, 100, 120 miles of each other. So everybody knows everybody who comes from that area. But in 1545, a first contract is made, and it's a fraternal contract between the Signor Mafio and seven other men 
to perform comedies from Lent, okay, for a year. Now, I would say, and a few people might support me, but I'm making a push for it here, that this is the birth of professional theatre, really hard-nosed professional theatre, because what this contract dictated was that we stay together for a year, all money that we make from performing is going to be equally shared at the end, no gambling or playing cards or lending money between the people in the troupe, and if you leave early before the year's up, you get nothing. So there's an ensemble sense of performing is being enforced, and it also stops your actor guys being poached right, by another company because they're not going to leave because they're not going to get any money. That's a very important watershed moment if this is the beginning of professional theatre. But I just want to reflect on what you've said about the comedia at this stage. We've got these stock characters that you've introduced us to. They come with their regional baggage, their class prejudices. It's not quite class at this stage, but certainly their prejudices about social status and about wealth. And this is all familiar and it's all topical, which of course is familiar to us from pantomimes. But can I ask you about how one way in which they seem to be different from pantomimes today, which is that now you have a pantomime, say it's Puss in Boots, and it's performing in one venue, whereas I get the impression Commedia dell'arte troops were travelling. So was there a standard circuit? Do we know anything about how this worked? And indeed, the risks of being on the road. Well, the risks were quite high. A Commedia troupe would probably have about 14 people in it when it was touring, which is quite a lot, but it's also a good little protection unit. So that is not something I've thought about, but practically, you know, the protection thing is a good thing. Now, there were several tiers of comedic troops. There were kind of, you know, the bottom tier who were kind of rubbish and there's no documentation about them at all. Then there's some medium tier ones and there's some very high tier ones. Now, we get into real, like, socioeconomic wars and cultural interest here because... The church, the good old Catholic church, did not really like the Commedia performers. One, because they were secular and there was religious drama. It happened on Sundays in front of the church and it was also part-time professional. So there was a very long-standing face-off between the church and the Commedia performers, which the Commedia performers ultimately won. And there was also a bunch of humanist dukes who were landowners all in some old dukedoms all around and in northern italy tuscany florence milan all small power bases you know trying to protect themselves and one of the angles of it is there was kind of like an artistic wars going on between all these dukes as to who was the most noble who was the most sophisticated who had the best you know who could show they were the most virtuous and glorious and virtue being this renaissance word that kind of means you are rich and elegant and you are well-versed in the arts and you are well-bred. It was a word you aspired to, but it also implied show as well. So the troops would often, once they got a bit of a name for themselves, they would become the pets or the court sponsorship of some of these dukes. So there was a company called Confidenti, often sponsored by the Este family in Ferrara. Some of them, not the top tier, but the lower tier, became almost dependent on these people because the Duke would give you money and you could survive. You know, this was the best paying gigs, as it were. And if you were protected by the Estes or the Sforzers, 
you know, or even the Borgias, God help us. It meant that the church kind of got off your back because the church didn't really have its own army. It always relied on the secular forces to arrest people and burn them if they were being accused of heresy. And you couldn't really ask the Duke's guys to go and burn the troop that he just paid a lot of money for. You know, there's a bit of a standoff that was going there. The top troop itself, which went through a few changes, was called the Gelosi, those jealous of our honour. And they managed to attract to themselves the best leading ladies in all of northern Italy. Can we talk about that? Because at the time, of course, unlike groups of English players, European troops are allowing women to perform. I mean, can you explain what cultural differences permit that, I suppose, and what we know about those women? The word courtesan okay, has a lot of ramifications that aren't entirely accurate because the literal translation in Italian just literally means the female presentation of courtier. Without going into too much what academics like me call granularity, there were two routes to becoming an actress. A woman called Barbara Strozzi, who was a street singer and dancer and tightrope walker and acrobat, was adopted by a guy called Bernardo Tasso, who was a courtier, and he was also the father of Toccato Tasso, a poet. And it feels a bit creepy now, but kind of trained her to become a speaker of verse, you know, a street performer and an acrobat and actually teaching them how to act. So suddenly this person with a wide range of skills, she could sing, she was an acrobat, was taught to act. That was one way in. She became the richest person in Spain. She married a guy called Alberto Nacelli, alias Zanganasa. They took their patch as Spain. The other way, there was this class of women in Venice called Oneste Cortigiani. And as part of the Renaissance leisure industry, wasn't just sex for hire. It was basically you're paying a woman for good company. You're paying her for social graces, for song, for dance, and to have a really nice afternoon indulging in all the top and a Renaissance social graces, song, dance, polite conversation. Music was much bigger as a social skill then than it was now. Social music was a big thing. Somebody sang a melody line, everybody would create a harmony part. There was a lot more improvisation within the music or within social music or domestic music then. Dance, you know, it's a nice thing. We still have Strictly, only it was more done as an activity. And this thing called rhetoric, how to be witty and graceful and not appear to be trying too hard. So... You have a class of women who had these social graces, were trained in these social graces, had access to rhetorical training because all the rhetorical manuals were available in a whole variety of the local languages, not just in Latin. And Venice being a business centre was the centre of printing in northern Italy. So the women made their money. And if you were a tourist to Venice then, and there still were, there were directories of these women. Now, who the first one who appeared on stage is, no one knows. And there's lots of theories. There's a few Italian academics basically say it's commoditized femininity in the sense of if you put a woman on stage, more people will come and see you in your show because they'll go, oh, women, that's amazing. I've never seen a woman on stage. But it's also proto-feminist in the sense of these women were business people. And 
they could increase their income by appearing on stage. Now, what happened to the comedies when women appeared on them is they stopped becoming farces. Because if you get a bunch of blokes on stage together, even if some are playing women, the tendency is for, as you said earlier on, it to be too bawdy and too smutty. As soon as you get women into these comedies, the level of sophistication which they played as an honesty courtesiani was brought into the shows, which suddenly allowed them to go from a short farce to a three-act romantic comedy. The woman called Isabella Andreini, who married Francesco Andreini, all the comedia leading ladies after her are named after her because she was the best. She could sing. She was beautiful. She was a fantastic actress. She was virtuous because in the troupe she was married to Francesca, so the church couldn't go, look, immoral Italian women living in sin with actors, burn them. You go, no, no, we're all married. So the idea of a comedia troupe of being a traveling family starts around this time. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So I wonder if we could pick up the story in a period when, if we're skipping ahead chronologically here, but to a period when we know that in England, women are appearing on the stage. And it feels 
that Commedia dell'arte enters a new phase of popularity. So I'm talking about the reign of Charles II, but when he returned to the throne, and we see a new era of popularity for the theatre generally, but this includes pantomime, essentially. We see the emergence of a play known as Punch and Judy. So for anyone listening who's not familiar with Punch and Judy, can you explain it for us and tell us why it is that in Charles II's reign, Commedia dell'arte has this resurgence? Yes, it definitely has resurgence. I will skip back very briefly to say that Italian troops had made it to England in the realm of Charles I and also in the realm of Elizabeth and James. They weren't particularly well received because it was problematic to have women on stage. There is a quote of Elizabeth I saying she was not amused by the lewd antics of the Italian women. Now, this might be because if you're performing not in your native language, you do more body acting, which, you know, would have pleased the courtiers, but it wouldn't have pleased a very old queen who didn't want anyone not looking at her, maybe. So there was a definite knowledge of Italian performers who, by the actors, were known to be good actors, but by people critically saying, oh, you know, it's just bawdy stuff. It isn't as good as our noble plays. Then we have Charles I, then we have Puritans, and there's no Italians allowed. Meanwhile, Charles II is hanging out in France, and the Gelosi are performing in France, fronted by Jean-Baptiste Poquelin de Molière and a bunch of Italian comedians. So they're kind of cross-fertilising there. The young Charles II is in this slightly headier, slightly freer world and sees these people and sees women on stage, and it's normal. So when he comes back to England, actresses are still quite a rarity. And so we have actresses coming over and performing for the king and performing publicly. We also, and this is in the Pepys diary, like Samuel Pepys, in 1662, he notes that puppets, including Punchinella, were performing at Covent Garden, and he thought they were great. Now, it's a whole other story, but basically... Punchinella, little chicken from Naples, evolved into our Mr. Punch. Okay, now we think in terms of the puppets, we'll come back to women and Charles II in a moment. We think that the puppets that first came over were marionettes, which tend to be more graceful and beautiful in their movement. But they require a troop of like seven or eight people to operate a good big show. If you go and see the Sicilian marionettes now, that's how it works. You just need that amount of people. When you move into a booth show, which is glove puppets, you can actually get it down to one or two. You know, most Punch and Judy professors, as they call themselves now, are just one. And it's a very different effect because a marionette is graceful and has somebody can speak for it. Punch has a swazzle, which gives you that voice, and is very loud. And the thing that you get most from Mr. Punch is you get the banging of wooden puppet heads against a playboard. So you get the violence from glove puppets. That comes into England and really goes under the radar, but it keeps going on. And again, it's got its own series of reinventions and stuff. And there's a whole, for the past 15 years, even in Naples, there's a reinvention of Punchinella. And the story is pretty much the same. You know, Punch does something horrible with the baby, gets arrested by the beadle or the poop, gets hung, escapes the hangman, etc. Only the Italians are slightly more romantic than us. So Punch and his girlfriend love each other. Punch goes to look for dinner, finds a chicken. It belongs to the rich man. There's a knife fight and he kills the rich man. And, you know, he escapes in the end. It's happy. 
Let's just park Policinella and punch. So what we have is women are now in theatre as dancers and singers. There are only still two licensed theatres going on in England at the time. So there's kind of almost cultural wars okay, between them. And a theatrical evening is not simply going and seeing a play. It's almost more similar to a kabuki show now. You go along and there's a song and dance opening. And then there's the best scene from last week's play. And then you see the best scene from next week's play. Then there's the serious tragedy. And then after it, there's a very short comedy. And then there's some dirty singing, you know, and then there's some rude songs. And they chuck you out about three o'clock. And you could feasibly have been in there since four in the afternoon. So these are massive events. Now, why I started all of this by going, it's no holds barred and a theatrical survival is that you had to get the drop on someone else. You know, you had to have something that was better. So who's more sophisticated than us English? Ah, it's generally the French. So we go and steal some good ideas from the French. Now, there was the Comédie Italienne, who are La Comédie Italienne, run by a very notable harlequin called Aguirradi, who was in Paris at the time. Now, there's a woman called Afra Ben. I wanted to ask you about Afra Ben because we're talking about women here on the stage, but we've also got a female playwright under Charles II. Does she pick up her ideas but, in Antwerp when she's there as a spy? She wrote a play called Harlequin Emperor of the Moon, which was a big hit in England. There was also about three plays called Alacan L'Empereur de la Lune, performed by you know the French Italian comedians. So, hmm, same title. But Afro Ben was so much more than a playwright. She was a spy for Charles II in Antwerp in the 1660s. And I think she had some literary patronage. It's unsure, but she started writing plays. The Rover was one about old cavaliers, you know, the old guys, people who had been fighting for Charles I, but were now just a bit of a nuisance and a social embarrassment, as they said, we fought for that man, you know. The kind of Harlequin Emperor of the Moon is a prop-heavy, fantastical event. It basically had telescopes, it had philosophers, it had people who lived on the moon, it had an emperor of the moon, very much like that little insert from Terry Gilliam's Baron Munchausen. And it's got all the traditional commedia characters in it. It's got the lovers, it's got Pantaloni, it's got the doctor, it's got Scaramouche, who is a not an Italian commedia character, but one that, as soon as the Italians moved to France, that they kind of created a Francophile one. Some guy who was a poet, but a peasant, but also a sword fighter. So there is a pattern of good ideas, you know, being taken from the continent and then being seen through an English lens. There were lots of trick props. There were trap doors. There were revolving scenery, I know, flying machines. All of the tricks that 18th century theatre could throw, Ephra Ben put them in that show. What we have a sense of is that in the late 17th century through into the 18th century, pantomime is becoming a spectacle, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. Because the other person who brought it over was a guy called John Rich, who didn't really get the plot, but he liked the characters of it. So his thing, because he was a physical performer, his and a signature routine was Harlequin being hatched from an egg 
and that's what people said he was and they said it was really funny and i guess all i can say is you had to be there but in order to expand upon this and turn it into a spectacle and because they didn't want to engage or they didn't quite understand the complexity of the love plots that the italian comedians based in france did they simply turned it into a chase so the plot characters became simplified there was pantaloon who became the english version of pantaloni his servant and harlequin and columbine and columbine was pantaloni's daughter pantaloon said no you can't marry her harlequin and columbine escaped and were chased by pantaloon and his servant and they were chased through and a quick change scenery and quick props there was one it was an early upright piano that had a youtube in it so you could backflip just above the keyboards and slide out through the person's legs or there was a tradition that harlequin's slapstick or baton if he hit it on the furniture the prop would then change into something else so in order to give some idea of continuity or some idea that this you know was a plot they just started borrowing english folk tales this is where like harlequin mother goose comes from so we have the remains of these italian characters come over to england slightly misunderstood but turned into spectacle from everything you've been saying one can imagine that we've got troops or theatre owners who were attempting to rival each other and doing ever more spectacular things like that YouTube you described. And your work talks about a case involving John Rich, whom you've mentioned, David Garrick, people know that name, and Colly Sibber from the late 1700s. Can you tell me a bit more whether one could argue in some ways Panto had gone a bit far? This area is one of great theatrical experimentation in order to pull the punters in. There is no money if you don't bring the punters in. So there are various ways of doing it. So sometimes in order to circumvent the rules of censorship again, instead of acting a story, they would dance a story. And there's this whole style related to comedia called grotesque. Now, it doesn't mean it's grotesque. It just means that all the movements of the actors or the dancers are extreme. And there was one called The Tavern Bilkers, which had Harlequin, Scaramouche and all those characters. It's like, imagine Matthew Bourne doing a Swan Lake, but doing like a slapstick. So because there's only two licensed theatres in London for a lot of this time, there's a lot of theatrical entrepreneurs are trying to find ways in order to get round the fact that you can only do acting there and you can only do acting there, so we'll have a dance there. They became called Harlequinades or kind of Harlequinards. Sorry, the John Rich is one in about know, 1732 to 1760s. For about 50 years, it became a seasonal thing to put on as much scenery, as much quick change, as much speciality acts you know, like and cram them into a folk story. So there'd always be the chase and there'd always be a story. But there was one with Grimaldi in it, a bit later than John Rich, called Harlequin Mother Goose. It wasn't anything to do with Mother Goose, but the main routine is Grimaldi climbing up lighthouses on the White Cliffs of Dover was fighting off an army of airships sent over by Napoleon. So there'd be tiny little gondolas, each with little people in them, and the clown would be fighting them balanced on top of this huge, great thing in the middle of the stage, which is all spectacle. So you can talk about what they did and what happened in each one, 
but to try and extract like an artistic series of movements or something behind it is very hard because it was popular theater. So they were trying various strategies to entertain the public. And the English myth and fairy stories became a really convenient hook to hang all these things in. A giant beanstalk to climb, for example, Sinbad. We can have galleons and ships coming onto stage and things like that. We can introduce a whole dance, you know, like of Turks, because for some reason we're in Turkey. So there's an essential tension between I know leads who are very good at what their job and have a certain sense of stage personality and virtuoso struggling or fighting or competing or complementing against these massive backdrops and props. Now, what we know from modern stagecraft with modern pantomimes is that you don't compete against the scenery. You have the widow twanky scene. Then you have the big spectacle of the sploosh scene. Then you have the ultraviolet scene when they're going underground. Then you have the flying carpet. So we've got a sense there from what you're saying about modern pantomime that there are some things that are done differently, but they're drawing on some of the similar tales, these fairy tales that have been passed down to us. So before we close, I want to ask you about a couple more elements of modern pantomime and whether we can trace them to the early modern period. One is the appearance of a guest star, someone sort of relatively famous, and the other is the lack of censorship. Most things go. Modern pantomimes tend to be risque. They may be intended for children, but there's lots of innuendo, plenty of jokes for the accompanying adults, usually at the expense of politicians. Do we see the same thing happening in the early modern period? Well, absolutely. I mean, there is the story that Will Kemp, who was one of the original members of Shakespeare's company, was kind of removed because Kemp's improvisations with the audience kind of interrupted some attempts to create more of a unified play. The early comedia performances were improvised, but by improvised, I mean the actors brought their own lines to them. A playwright didn't write the lines. If you played the role of Pantalone, you played him for your life, you know, and you became, okay, good at that. But a lot of the improvisations were based on rhetoric, the principles of rhetoric. You had a structure and you improvised around a structure. Now, this was all taught in early modern grammar schools as well, the principles of rhetoric. So although we have much bigger oral culture in Elizabethan early modern times, you also have a training in being able to al improviso improvise which you learned in grammar school, on a particular theme. So what a surprise these people became actors. One of the things that people looking at original practice in Shakespeare now is how much of the actual words do we actually have as the play now? How much of them did actually appear on stage? Because, you know, if you had a week to learn your lines and then somebody shouted out something funnier, did you ignore it? If you ignored it, any performer that you can't, you have to include it. So my feeling that Elizabethan plays were a lot more fluid, especially the outdoor ones, were a lot more fluid in terms of what the actual text was. So a character like Will Kemp had a lot more freedom to do Will Kemp funny stuff within the wider context of a dramatic arc. Now, this is direct address to an audience. Hello, how are you doing? You're doing well. Don't throw that apple. It's rotten. 
just like your aim. You missed, sir. So there's an interaction and a reflexivity with the audience. No, it's like you're trying to perform Shakespeare in a cabaret and the audience is half drunk. Okay, and they don't really want to see the boring bits. So unless you are really selling them to the audience, their enjoyment is by seeing, you know, how much they can discomfort the performers. And if the performers rise above it and impress them, fantastic, we love you even more, guys. But if they don't, well, we had fun destroying them. And oh, oh, and it's the clown on again. And that's always an undercurrent of popular theatre, that it's interactive. The problem we have with Shakespeare is we regard it as poetry, but in fact it's a whole bunch of people writing words that allowed their actors to survive in front of a crowd that could have many different moods. So moving on to pantomime, that is the tradition that carries on. Will Kemp was a star, okay, and he directly addressed the audience. So when Will Kemp camped on stage, the audience would see him as, it's Mr. It's Will Kemp, and then go, who's he playing in this play? And then Will Kemp would do his, hello, I'm Will Kemp routine. And then they go, all right, I'm going to play Costard in this play. So when I come on, I'm Costard. Get off. All right, we're starting. Okay. And then it's, hey, he's doing his comedy routine in the play. Oh, it's going really well. I'll do some of my own stuff. Shakespeare in the background. Oh, man, he's going on a, his stuff again. So in pantomime, when you pull in a star, it's just a tradition of popular theatre. There are many ways we watch a play. I know somebody says that, Analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. You don't learn much and the frog dies. But what I'm sure of is that you follow the story arc of a pantomime, then the star comes out and you appreciate the star for being the star. Then the story comes out and you follow the story. Then the two specialist comics do their routine and you relate to that again. And there's a song and dance and a number or something. And that tickles a different bit of your brain. So a comedia show an early modern live show at the Globe with a wide audience and a pantomime, a theatre that's trying to reach every single bit of the way an audience will receive and enjoy something. I mean, that's performance analysis. So everybody, whether you're going to see Tweedy the Clown or finding your local theatre and whatever they're doing, you can go knowing that what you're doing actually has its roots in the early modern period. You're being just as high-minded as you are enjoying the bawdy jokes. Dr. Ollie Crick, thank you so much for this extraordinary tour around the origins of pantomime, and we've learned an awful lot along the way about everything else too. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been an honour trying to explain some of this stuff. Thank you, and happy Christmas. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, my producer, Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built 
a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.